Amen. Well, we are in Matthew chapter 18, and I want to give a little preview before we get into the actual text. Um, One of the things that we've been noting about Matthew is that Matthew tells the story of Jesus to emphasize how Jesus takes all the important chapters and moments of the Old Testament and fulfills them. And in chapters 14 through 18, Matthew is emphasizing how Jesus is the new Elisha. John dies, and Jesus makes it clear that John was the Elijah that was to come. Elijah, in the, excuse me, Elisha in the Old Testament did several feeding miracles where he multiplied food and, and fed crowds. Jesus feeds 5,000, then 4,000. In the Old Testament, Elisha went to a widow in the, Syro, in, in the area of Sidon, which was a Gentile territory, and Elisha ministered to a widow there. And Jesus likewise goes to the area of Tyre and Sidon and ministers to a widow. Elisha goes to Mount Sinai, or excuse me, Elijah went to Mount Sinai. And so we also see Elijah and Moses uh, on Mount of Transfiguration in this section. But what happens in chapter 18 is a sermon to the church. Uh, We've talked about how there's five major teaching blocks in Matthew, five sermons in Matthew. And this is the sermon to the church. Elisha ministered in the northern kingdom, which had a lot of idolatry. And one of the things that Elisha did is gathered together small communities of prophets. He started little communities of the people of God in the midst of a corrupt people of God. He started these little prophetic communities, and they were meant to be leaven. They were meant to be salt. They were meant to be a blessing, hopefully, eventually, to the northern kingdom. And that is precisely what we see Jesus doing with the church. He is gathering together the people of God, creating them anew in the hopes that they will be leaven uh, to the people of God and to the world. And so Jesus' sermon here is to the church. Uh, The ladies went on a ladies retreat last weekend, and it was all about community. This is Jesus' sermon in Matthew on community. Uh, and And so keep that in mind. It's all one thing. It all hangs together. And one of the things I would encourage you to keep in mind is as we go through each section... They all interweave with one another. They're meant to inform one another. And I'll try to point out how that goes. So first, in verse 22, Jesus starts out by predicting again that he's going to the cross. And I think what this suggests is that the community that Jesus is creating needs to live in the shadow of the cross. Of course, the disciples don't understand yet. They don't understand what's going to happen until the resurrection. But this is a community that Jesus means to create in the shadow of the cross, where this community is created by the love of God manifest on the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the humble love of God who emptied himself, became a servant, laid down his life for his people, for his enemies. And that love is the the springboard. It's the foundation of this community's life. It is as if Matthew is saying, do nothing in your community life. In your life together that does not spring from receiving the love of God on the cross. And it's a community in the shadow of the cross that's meant to reflect the poured out love of Jesus on the cross. So I would suggest that this passion prediction isn't just, oh, it was next in the text, it's chronological. It's Matthew's way of saying this community is a community of the cross. It's a community of poured out love for one another. And we're called to imitate that love only as we receive it, only as we are steeped in it. In the next section, uh, this is the curious incident of the, of the tax. And I love it because Peter's like, they come to him and say, doesn't your master pay the tax? And he says, uh, yes. 
And then he goes to Jesus and Jesus knows, or what do you think, Peter? He knows that, you know, Peter didn't know what was going on. Few things. This tax was a temple tax. It was specifically, and it's mandated in the Old Testament. It was a temple for the maintenance of the temple. It was a a tax for the um, provision of sacrifices. And Jesus' question is essentially, should we have to pay the tax? Does a king tax his own kids or does he tax the people? And Peter gives the right answer. Well, he taxes the people. He says, so the sons are free. And there's a couple of things Jesus is doing here. Number one, he's the temple. The old temple is soon to be obsolete. He is the place. And his work on the cross is the place where forgiveness for sin happens, where reconciliation to God happens. So number one, Jesus is saying, the tax, we don't have to pay it because I'm now what the temple was all about. But number two, notice what he says. The sons are free. The sons are free. And Peter, you and the other disciples, you're sons of God by faith in me. I'm adopting you to the Father, and you are sons of God, and you are free, and you do not have to pay this tax. And maybe Americans would end the story there. But Jesus says, nevertheless, so as not to offend them, go on your little fishing trip, and you'll find the coin and pay for you and me. Now, the thing I want to point out here is that Jesus says, limit your freedom, Peter, for the sake of outsiders so they're not offended. And you have to take this statement and this this incident in the context of the whole gospel because has Jesus offended people? Jesus has indeed offended people several times. Why not now? Why not in this particular incident? There's plenty of times when Jesus is offensive. Jesus, Jesus is discerning enough to say, listen, this is a freedom we have, but this is not a hill I want to die on. And Peter, you know what? Sometimes you need to limit your freedom for the sake of outsiders. So there's no hindrance to them coming to the gospel. Jesus essentially says there are some hills to die on and there are some that you should just go ahead and take the hit. You should go ahead and pay. Maybe it's even an unjust thing to pay. But is that really the hill you need to die on? And Jesus is asking the church to be discerning about what hills we die on. And I think this is a word for the American church. What are the hills we need to die on? And what are the hills that we need to say, this is not a big deal. We're not going to let this be a hindrance. So this is a word for Peter towards, for the church, towards those who are outside. The remainder of the sermon is for life together in the community. And they ask this question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And of course, this is a scene that we're often, all of us are very familiar with, I think, where Jesus is aware that they're operating on an entirely different plane of values. They're like, all right, they're, they're arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. And so he pulls a child, and a child would have been someone with no status, no particular rights, someone who is to be seen, not heard. And Jesus puts them right in the midst and says, unless you repent, he says, unless you turn and become like a little child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be a part of what I am doing. Jesus is essentially saying, get out of the competition for greatness game altogether. That is not what my kingdom is about. That is not what I am about. Jesus, just to to emphasize his role in this, Jesus doesn't come into the world and say, well, what is greatness in the world? I'm going to come and be great according to the world's standards. If Jesus wanted to do that, he could. He came and didn't pander to any of the values and standards of greatness in the world. 
He was oblivious to those things. And he calls us to conversion to say, get out of the game. Get out altogether from the game of trying to be competitively better than someone else. Children in that world knew their smallness. They knew their insignificance in a sense. Children are receptive. I don't think Jesus is saying children are innocent. I think it's a a matter ultimately of humility. Children know where they fit in the ultimate scheme of things. Jesus is calling his disciples and he ultimately says greatness in the kingdom of God is humble service. Why? Because our king is the supreme example of humble service, of emptying himself and not giving a wit, a care, a concern at all for the standards of greatness of the culture around us. And then he gives one of his most serious warnings, and we'll get to this more in the next, sec- the next section, that it would be better for somebody whose who's trip, it would be better for that person to not be born, right? That the millstone around the neck, and by the way, this millstone is not a little millstone, but this is a very large thing that a donkey would have spun around. So in this section, Jesus opens up this theme of little ones. And pay attention to that theme as we continue through this section. In 18.7, he says, Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks, for it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Nevertheless, woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, If you are aware of a sin in your life, you need to be ruthless with that sin. He used, remember, the same language. If your eye offends you, pluck it out. Jesus is essentially teaching we need to be radical with sin in our own lives. And we need to not only try to avoid it, but find out five steps ahead of how we get there, how to avoid even the path that might lead us down the course to that sin. Jesus is saying be radical and ruthless with yourself in keeping yourself from sin. Now, he says, you need to have the same kind of ruthlessness for what might hinder other people's faith, especially in the community. This, this word stumble occurs all throughout this section, and it means to hinder somebody, in particular to hinder them from believing in the gospel, to hinder them in their faith. And Jesus is saying we should be absolutely ruthless. I am responsible for my brothers, and I'm responsible for I'm responsible if I could lead them into something that would hinder their faith. For an example of this, Paul, the apostle, could tell the Galatian church, guys, if you get circumcised, you have fallen from grace. Or he can say it in no uncertain terms. And then he can go and circumcise Timothy without batting an eye. Why is that? I think because he was aware of this is Timothy, you're half Jewish. This isn't a big deal. If we don't circumcise you, it could be a hindrance to the gospel. So let's go ahead and do that. Right. But Jesus is calling his people, his church, his community to be responsible and to hold ourselves responsible for what we do and what impact we may have on the faith of other ones. This next section, 1810, starts this way. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually see the face of the Father who is in heaven. So this is about the little ones. And Jesus says, essentially, you need to think small. In the community, in this, in this kingdom community that I'm creating, you actually need to value supremely the little ones. And this little ones is not just kids, although it includes kids. The little ones are small people, unimportant people, the weak, uneducated, 
without our culture's measure of values, without particular gifts, people that we might consider uninteresting, Jesus says they you should value supremely. We can say it this way. My treatment, me, my treatment of insignificant, and I put that in scare quotes, insignificant members of the church is the standard by which I will be judged. Let me say that again. My treatment of the quote-unquote insignificant members of the church is the standard by which I will be judged. Jesus doesn't value people according to our standards. Jesus did not sit in heaven and say, you know, I'd like to go down there and network because there's a couple of those people that would really be profitable for me in advancing my agenda. Can you imagine how irritating, boring, insignificant we must be to God or we could be to God? But he comes and he associates with the lowly and he's calling his church, his people to be a community that associates with those that the world would say that we might even say in our worldly formed instincts that they're statistically unimportant. They're not strategic for the church or for me or for my agenda. That is the measure of the community of the people of God. And I'd like to point out too that care for the poor, care for the, the underdog, all of those values that are still to some degree in our culture a little bit, they come from Christianity. They come from the incarnation. And as Christianity recedes from our culture, I don't know what's going to happen. But it's up to the church to be the community that lives that message out and declares the message that we learn in the gospel of Jesus. Amen. Last I'll point out that Israel, when they were sent into captivity, were judged precisely for how they treated the least of these. It was because they were failing to care for the least of these that God sent them into exile. And the church is meant to be the fulfillment, the reversal of that. Finally, 18, or excuse me, eighteen fifteen. Now, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. I think the ESV may say, if your brother sins against you. Does it say that? So I'm going to go with the variant that says, if your brother sins. So this next teaching of Jesus is one that I think we don't like. It's not as popular. But in the community of the cross, we are commanded to confront sin in our brothers and sisters. It's not an option. We're not free to do it. Jesus commands us to do it. It's not something that we can get out of if we want to put all of Jesus' teachings into practice. Notice what he says, though. It is uh, if you see your brother sin, it's not faults or flaws. It's not minor things. These are grave sins. We might say sins that violate the Ten Commandments. And notice, too, that it's in the context of the Sermon about the Cross where we're to, consider the young, we're to consider the little ones, where we ourselves are called to be humble. Uh, it's all in this context that this happens. It's in the context of brotherhood, where I've been adopted by God through Jesus Christ, and this is my brother in the faith. Pay attention to how Jesus says we should proceed in these cases. First of all, he says, he doesn't say, get the pastor to go out and do this. He says, if you see your brother sin, you go to him alone. It's brothers equal before the father, one who goes to another. And notice what he does. He doesn't say, he doesn't say, go to somebody else and tell them about it. He says, go to that person. 
and show them his sin. And if he sees it, you have gained your brother. Notice Jesus is careful here. He doesn't escalate things quickly. Right? He doesn't just say, oh, if you see your brother sin, go get the pastor and three other people and go chew him out. He says, go to your brother privately, personally, and show him. And if he doesn't see it, then is the time to escalate. And eventually, he says, if they don't hear it, take it to the church, and the church will have to make a pronouncement. And this is something I think that scares us, but this is the teaching of Jesus. If somebody's in a persistent sin, and they refuse help, and they refuse humble, loving correction, the church is called to make a pronouncement. And the passage that we love about the gathering of the church that I think still applies to that, the passage that we love that says, wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst, is precisely about these moments of correction in the body of Christ. All right, it's precisely in those contexts. It is ultimately um, our loving duty to do this. And we can't be loving if we see something and we're not given to taking care of it or to addressing it. Finally, we get to this last section, and, um, and maybe this is a response in Peter to the thing about correcting a brother. Peter says to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but 77 times. So Peter's thinking, okay, Jesus wants us to be sort of forgiving. And, you know, I, I don't know, Jesus is at seven times. Peter thinks that's a lot. All right. And Jesus' response does several things. Seven times 70 or seven, seven times. This rhymes with a number of things in Scripture. I don't know if you remember all the way back to Genesis, the, the early chapters of Genesis. There's a guy named Lamech. He has two wives. That should tell you something. And he says, ladies, this young man offended me. And guess what I did? I killed him. And he says, I will be avenged seven times. Right? He says, I am going to pay back those who get me. Jesus is undoing that cycle of revenge that started back with Cain, proceeded through Lamech and others. He's undoing that line. But I also think it rhymes with another passage in Daniel. In Daniel, Daniel prophesies this 77 weeks, and at the end of this time, or the 70 times 7, at the end of this time, Daniel says that um, the Lord will finish transgression, Make an end of sin, make atonement for iniquity, bring in everlasting righteousness, seal a vision of prophecy, and anoint the most holy place. He's talking about this changing of the ages, this order that changes in history when God would bring forgiveness to his people and they would become a community and a people of forgiveness. Jesus is ultimately saying in this section, in my community, forgiveness has the last word. And I think it's important that it follows on the, on the command to correct a brother that is sinning. Forgiveness gets the last word. The aim of the correction is always restoration and always forgiveness. And then Jesus gives another story here to illustrate this. And there's just one detail I want to point out about this story. We, it's difficult to do this precisely, but he says that um, the, one, the one guy is forgiven of uh, how many talents is it? 10,000 talents. A talent was about 115, 120 pounds of precious metal, silver or gold. So we're talking roughly in the neighborhood of $2 million. So I want you to imagine $2 million. This servant owned, owed his master $2 million. The denarii that this other slave owed him, it's about $25. 
Okay, Jesus is being excessively ridiculous in the proportions here. Here's a guy forgiven of $2 million and he can't forgive his brother for 25 bucks. And is willing to put him into debtor's prison for the 25 bucks. So $2 million, $25 worth of debt. The point, partly, of this parable is that we have all been forgiven for millions by God. We have all been forgiven by God. And our debt was insurmountable and way beyond what we could ever pay off in several lifetimes. And the worst thing Jesus is saying that your brother or sister might do to you, that's about $25. Does that make sense? There's nothing that somebody else can do to us that is as grievous and great as what we did to God that necessitated Jesus dying on the cross. The community that Jesus is creating with his word is meant to be a community of forgiveness. Let me summarize these these seven things and then we'll come to the table. First, Jesus says, do nothing, do nothing for community not rooted in receiving the love of God. This community is to be shaped by the cross. You receive the love of God on the cross. You receive the forgiveness of millions so that you can extend forgiveness in all your relationships. Number two, we're free as the sons of God. We have rights and privileges that we have not begun to fathom, but we're called to limit them for the sake of outsiders. And this is really difficult for freedom-loving, maybe we should say freedom-worshipping Americans, but we are called to limit our freedoms for the sake of not giving offense when the, the offense is not necessary. Number three, greatness in the kingdom of God is humility. Humble service. Greatness in the kingdom of God is nothing like greatness in the world and by the world's standards. We're called to stop trying to compete according to the greatness standards of our culture. And to humbly give ourselves up up in loving service for others because our Lord has lovingly, humbly served us. Number four, we're called to be a radical and ruthless enemy of anything in our lives that would hurt the faith of others. We're called to examine ourselves, again, not just for personal sin, but maybe for things that aren't sin, that maybe are even our right, but might hinder the faith of another. Number five, we are called to take great interest in the least important individuals in the church or the people we think are least important. This is precisely what Jesus did in taking an interest in us. And he wants to take us to those that he considers important, those that he treasures and values. Number six, love commands that we humbly and carefully confront a brother or sister in sin. We do not have a right to avoid this if we're going to put Jesus' community teachings into practice. It is unloving to avoid it. We're called, according to Matthew in the whole of the gospel, according to Jesus, we're called to be indulgent with our brother's weaknesses, but not their wickednesses. All right, and this is the responsibility of brothers and sisters in the community. And finally, we are the forgiven society. We're called to be a community for whom forgiveness is the underlying, it's the operating system. It's the water in which we swim. Many cultures throughout the history of the world have made heroes of those who took vengeance on their enemies, Starting with Achilles and going up to most of our action movies today. And we're called to have another hero 
who instead said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And we're called to join Jesus in his prayer in our lives together as a community. Amen. Amen. Let's uh, let's stand.